0: For today comes from esther 8 3 through 8. then esther spoke again to the king she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of haman the agabite and the plot that he had devised against the jews when the king held out the golden scepter to esther esther rose and stood before the king and she said if it please the king and if i have found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king and i am pleasing in his eyes Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king, and sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked.
1: Well, good morning, New City. Good evening, if you're watching this tonight. Hey, listen, I am so glad you're here today. If you're a guest, I just want you to know I'm really, really happy uh, you are here. Thanks for taking the uh, the courageous step of either coming online or attending in person. And if you are uh, new to New City, this is our first weekend truly going live in our broadcasting, our Sunday morning uh, experiences. So I'm really glad that you're here. I'm glad everybody who is online is here. A couple things uh, just for forecasting what's coming up at New City. We've got a new series starting November 1st called Relationship Goals. Uh, that is in a couple weeks. So next week I'm going to do a recap message uh, on the sort of story frame of Esther, and I want to put our story into that story frame, and we're going to have a lot of fun with that, thinking about God's redemptive story. So be one final message in Esther, although we Today, we're studying 8, 9, and 10, the final three chapters of Esther. I also want to note this new city drive in is a be good news opportunity, okay? Uh, We know that schools, uh, particularly teachers and students, are are of the most, you know, of those who are suffering the most during this time of COVID. And we want to be a blessing, and we want to invest in Shine school partnership in a significant way. And so this is not only a time to come see Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is one of my favorite action movies of all time. Uh, It is uh, also an opportunity to invite some friends and hang out with some people, but it's also an opportunity to do some good. And we're donating $25 for every car uh, that comes into the event School Partnership. We rented out the Balloon Fiesta. So, cost of Balloon Fiesta Drive-In Park have been covered by New City, so that we can uh, invest in our schools. This is a be good news opportunity. So, take advantage of that, please. Invite a friend. Be courageous. Invite some family. Invite some coworkers. Even uh, the more people that come to this event, uh, the better this is going to be. All right. We are in the series Godless. This is a final message in the study of the text. As a kind of as we parse it out, next week we'll do a, a survey of Esther, and I think it's going to be a fun message. But for this week, I just want you to know that we are diving back into Esther. Esther is a book that doesn't mention God, which is why we call the series Godless. We're talking about having faith in a godless time, and that's kind of what's going on in Esther. And it's kind of what's going on in our life, too, to be honest. Now, I, I, I don't know. I, I know, it's bad. You know. I know it's bad to say it, and, uh, and I'm looking at everybody here in the room and everybody online Uh, when I say this, is that you need a rest. I know it's bad etiquette, all right, to say that, hey, you look tired. Uh, But you guys need a rest, man. Like, we need a rest. Like, this thing that we're going through collectively as a culture at this particular time in history is hard. And I need verses like Matthew 11. I need verses like this. Come to me. All all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I, I need that. I need Jesus to say to me, Nate, come to me. I know you're weary. And I know you need some rest. Anybody else me feeling that? I mean, just just right now you're tired. Look, here's the deal. I mean, like, you know, as a pastor of a church, you know, I don't always know what's what the future holds, and right now I certainly don't know what the future holds. And I'm just going to be honest with you. This is not a political statement, okay? It's not a political statement. It's just a statement of fact and reality. Every Thursday when the governor has a, a press conference, I get filled with all kinds of anxiety. I'm going, what's going to happen? What's next? And and I I I, I need to like be able to know that in Jesus I find my rest like that's where I find my rest is in him how does anxiety manifest in your life how does it manifest for you physically lately you know in the past like when, when I feel anxiety because there's a lot of work to do I usually feel it in my shoulders I feel it in my back but when I feel anxiety because I'm uncertain about the future the anxiety is kind of fear-based anxiety I feel it in my gut I feel it here and I, I, it's just like it's like butterflies, but not because something good's about to happen. It's because I don't know if something bad's about to happen. And it's like that weird kind of I feel it there, and I feel it emotionally, because when I start to feel that feeling, I immediately unplug emotionally, detach, unplug, relationally. Uh, I'm not, you know, I, I can I can put on a good face when I'm, uh, you know, in, in an anxious moment. I can certainly fake it till I make it. I've learned that. Uh, Skill, if you want to call it that, over time. But relationally, depth of relationship sort of evaporates when I'm under anxiety. And spiritually, what I, what I find is that I know what I need to do, but sometimes sort of the, 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 the fear of the future becomes so like real for me that I don't do what I know I should be doing, which is turning to Jesus. One of the best treatments for anxiety is hope. And if you could, if you could just take a vial of hope, and you could, you, could, you could treat that anxiety to hope, you'd find that that anxiety would, would, in fact, dissipate. Jesus says in Luke 14, I mean, this is Jesus anticipating the cross of Christ. I mean, this is anticipating some serious trauma his disciples are about to witness. And he says to the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Believe, have hope. He says later in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now somebody needs that peace, ask him for it, right? I need your peace, Jesus. Peace, Jesus. Hey, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So don't, don't, be, don't be afraid, but believe, have, have hope, receive the peace of Jesus. Years ago, I, I was interviewing a a candidate for a job, and I called a friend, and I said to my friend, I said, hey, uh, I need some advice. I'm interviewing some guys for for this particular position, and I don't know, you know, what's the best way to interview? How How do you, I mean, how do you not make a mistake in an interview? And he gave me this piece of advice. He said, past performance is the best predictor of future success. He said, when you're interviewing somebody for a job, it's like, like ask them about their past performance because their past performance is the best predictor of their future success. You know, that principle applies to our faith. You see, when it comes to our faith, God's past faithfulness, it gives us confidence in, our, in, our, in, our, in His future faithfulness. One of the reasons why it's important for us to keep in mind the story of God and to keep retelling and retelling the stories of God because every time we do, we're retelling the story of God's faithfulness. And when you retell the story of God's faithfulness, what you're doing is you're going, you know what, he was faithful in the past, he'll be faithful in the future. His past performance is the best predictor of, his, of, of, of the future success. And God has proven throughout history that he stands by his word. You, you look at Hebrews thirteen five. I will never leave you nor forsake you, and that is true, as a promise you can hold on to today. I will never leave you nor will I forsake you. Heaven and earth shall pass away, says Jesus, but my words will not pass. Like, you can trust them. My my past performance is a predictor of how I will, in fact, engage with you in your everyday life. So retelling and celebrating our faith story gives us hope, and it lets us rest. Because we're not anxious about what's going to happen in the future, because we have evidence of what's happened in the past. And it settles us when we know our story. And so Purim is one of those celebrations. One of those celebrations that was, was, was inaugurated because God's rescue in Esther. You read about in Esther 9.20. Now we're reading 8, 9, and 10 today. And so if you want to have a Bible ready to go, I'm going to be back and forth between 8, 9, and 10. But just looking at Purim as a celebration, here's what uh, the Scripture says. And Mordecai recorded these things. That's God saving the Jews from genocide and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, both near and far obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies or rest from their enemies, when God gave them rest. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, anybody need that? That they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So Purim is retold every year at this celebration that was inaugurated here in Esther 9. And Purim begins by acknowledging the cosmic struggle between God's covenant people and their enemies. It is a cosmic struggle, struggle. So what happens in Purim before Esther's read is Deuteronomy 25 is opened up. Because if you remember in our study, if you don't remember, that's okay, I'll fill you in. There's a bad guy, kind of the villain of Esther, his name is Haman. And Haman is an Agagite. And, and Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And you read about the Amalekites in Deuteronomy 25:17, and they're representative of this cosmic struggle between God's covenant people and the Amalekites, God's, the enemies of God's covenant people. And he says and Scripture says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came up out of Egypt. And so this is the big rescue. God rescued Israel. They were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. God rescued them very dramatically, brought them into a life of worship, and as they were traveling in the wilderness wandering, the Amalekites attacked from the rear. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. And in Deuteronomy 25, 19, the scripture says, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. And so to this day, when Esther's read during the celebration of Purim, it is common to boo, to jeer, to make noise, to blot out the name of Haman. Literally kids are given noisemakers and every time his name is read, it's boo and, and lots of noise. They're literally trying to blot out their enemy. When the story of Esther's read aloud, it's a, it's a dramatic retelling of a story, a story of God's faithfulness. You see, we are reminded in Scripture that our struggle is not primarily physical, it's spiritual. And there are times we have to realize that the, the struggle that we're engaged in is a cosmic struggle. It's not a physical, flesh to flesh struggle, it's a, it's a spiritual struggle. Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and evil forces in the heavenly realms. Like, that's our struggle, it's a spiritual struggle. As we tell and retell our story, we are remembering that Jesus has given us victory spiritually from the enemy who is against us. Listen to the kind of language spoken in Colossians 2.15. He disarmed rulers and authorities. Jesus put them to open shame in His resurrection. He triumphed over them. And so Jesus is a victor over our enemies. And so when salvation stories are told, salvation stories ought to be a raucous celebration. A way for us to say, the enemy has been overcome. There has been victory, and it's been received. And the the enemy who stands as a condemner over you has been overcome, and his mouth has been shut, and the mouth of God has been opened. And what we hear is from the the Father saying, you're my child, you're my daughter, you're my son. What you hear is Jesus saying, my righteousness is now yours. In Luke 15, 10, we're reminded in this series of parables about lost being found. That when those who are lost are found, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's celebration. And so it makes sense that when we're seeing a rescue in Esther, that, that that rescue is met with celebration. It should make sense that when somebody who is lost and is found and is rescued by the blood of Jesus, like their sins are covered on the cross, and he buries them away, he rises again, he conquers them to death, like when that reality is true for a sinner saved, receiving the righteousness of God, there ought to be celebration. Mike Cosper says, in Faith Among the Faithless, in a controversial passage of the Talmud, that's a, a Jewish book giving guidance into Jewish history, Jews are instructed to drink wine until they can't tell the difference between the phrases, cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordecai. You can see why that's controversial. But they were, they were instructed in the Talmud, hey, this should be such a raucous celebration that you get so wasted that you can't tell between the difference between Mordecai and Haman. Not recommending that for your celebrations, but just saying that there is an underscoring here in history that... that this kind of salvation story is worthy of celebration. So you need a rest. I need a rest. And retelling our story helps us rest. Retelling stories of God's faithfulness helps us rest. Now it's important to note that Esther is a type of redemption story that points to our true redemption. Now when I say type, is that that's what it is, a type of redemption story. Meaning it's not going to be complete, it's not going to be full, it's not going to be whole. Esther's a type of redeemer that is extremely flawed. If you remember, Esther got to where she was by violating commandments of God. I mean, she slept with a man that was not her husband. This is, this is, a, this is, this is, this is a God working in a fallen world to bring about redemption, but that redemption is still incomplete. I, I don't know how to land the plane on this, okay? I really don't know how to land the plane on this, and so I'm just going to be honest with you. I've been trying to figure out, and we even prayed about this before service began today, but here's the deal, like, one of the things I want you to see is that in Esther's story, there is a redemption type, a redemption narrative that points to a future reality. And sometimes I think younger, like I, I've seen a whole generation of Christians they, who feel like they've been sold a false bill of goods. And they thought when they became a Christian that everything would go great, everything would be swimming, everything would be wonderful. And, and what happens is they get disappointed in God, they get disappointed in the church, they feel like they've been dealt a raw hand of some kind and i want you to know that god's redemption does in fact happen in the here and now but it can only point us to god's future redemption that's complete and that does a couple things for us one is it it lets us relax a little bit but two it just recognizes that no matter how messy your story is god can bring redemption but just know that god's redemption is going to be a redemption out of the mess and it's going to be out of the mess into a world that's still a mess because of sin but it points to, it points to something greater. Alright, so back into Esther 8.3. I don't know how to say this and so the Holy Spirit just bridged the gap. Alright, then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet, this is verse 8, and wept and pleaded with him uh, to avert the evil plan, Haman and the Agai, Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And So here's where we are. So what's happened is the great reversal's happened. Esther's been, you know, sort of recognized, uh, Mordecai's been recognized, Haman's dead, Uh, you know, all of this kind of reversals happen, but the the issue, the decree that cannot be undone to annihilate the Jews on a day forthcoming is not undone. And so Esther again goes into the king's court. She again risks her life, and when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, if he didn't hold it out, she could be killed, but he did. Esther rose to before the king, and she said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and If the king seems right, if things seem right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite. Now this can't be done, but something will be done. And Again, I want to say it, and I I, I can't say this enough, and I just want you to hear me on this. The redemption story in Esther is an imperfect redemption story. It's imperfect. You read, I was, I was out dinner with some friends uh, on Friday night, and one of my friends said, hey, I was, um, I was reading Esther 8, 9, and 10 in preparation for the sermon this weekend, and there's a lot of murder in there. <laughs> there's a lot of death. How are you going to preach on that? And I said, well, the redemption story in Esther is incomplete. It's pointing to something complete. It's incomplete. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, Because he intended to lay hands on the Jews, but you may write as you please a new law. In fact, Mordecai has the ring that Haman had, and he basically and this is one of the weird things about Esther is like Xerxes seems to be kind of like, Okay, you guys do what you want. He does that with genocide with Haman. He does that now with the counter sort of law that Mordecai is going to write uh, in this passage. He says, you guys go do what you want to do. And Mordecai displays a type of divine reversal, but it's a crude example. I keep saying this because I want you to know it's a crude example. So there was a ring given to Haman that was kind of like, hey, here's the king's authority. Go out and issue genocide. Now a ring's given uh, to Mordecai. Go out and un, you know, undo it the best you can, even though you can't unwrite a law. So the king's scribes were summoned at the time, a whole bunch of them got together, all the languages of of the uh, of the Persian Empire are, you know, letters were written in all those languages that go out to all of the known world really at this time. And look at verse 10, and he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives. Now this is the same language being used here that was used in the decree to order genocide. So destroy, kill, annihilate any armed forces of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and the plunder of their goods. On one day throughout all the province of King Asherah, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, so the order was given, that on the same day that genocide was called, was ordered, or given permission for genocide was given uh, to the province, now a counter order is given that you can defend yourself. This is sort of an incomplete story of redemption. It's very violent. Listen, there are redemption, there are praiseworthy redemption stories everywhere in the Christian community. However, they are merely temporary and incomplete signposts pointing to a future and ultimate reality. We have to to remember that. This is one of the the sort of the messages Jesus kept trying to communicate to his disciples in his ministry my kingdom's a heavenly one. You know, that, that what, what's happening here and now, right now, is incomplete, but it's pointing to a future, more complete redemption. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. I will say that temporary redemption is good and a good thing. We should long for it. And in every province and every city, Wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews. A feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had followed them. So everybody was like, you know what? I'll be a Jew. <laughs> you know, if we're picking sides now, I'll be a Jew. And people are lining up to become Jews at this moment. I want you to just, just, just to listen to like the sort of reversal, the switching, the changing of the narrative. I mean, just days earlier it seemed hopeless for the Jews, and now there's all this hope in the kingdom, and everybody is filled with joy. In fact, people are lining up to become Jews. And so can I just say to you, never underestimate the power of God to rewrite your story. This is a messy story. And your life may be a messy life. And you may be going through a lot in your story Is sometimes I think it feels like in the story that we are living, a little hopeless. And Esther's here to say it's, it's never hopeless. Redemption can happen for you. It will be incomplete as it points to the complete deal, but it's here for you. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And did as they pleased to those who hated them. What do we do with this? <laughs> you know, sometimes like I think we read Old Testament stories. And we go, "Man, that seems like the Old Testament God was like very, you know, violent." The New Testament God's like very lovey-dovey. And what do we do with this? Esther's a type. It's pointing. It's pointed to a cosmic struggle. It's pointing to a cosmic struggle that's, that's there because of sin and evil in the world. What's it pointing to? Well, Jesus did not come to destroy our enemies. Hear me. Jesus did not come to destroy our enemies. He came to destroy all enmity. You see this happen when Jesus is about to be taken to the cross. Judas betrays him with a kiss. In Matthew 26, Peter pulls out his sword He strikes off the ear of Malchus. And Jesus says, put your sword back into its place. You see, what happens if Peter goes, I I know this story. I know this story. This is when we fight back. This is when when the battle happens. This is when we overcome Rome. I'm ready. And he pulls his sword out and he gets engaged. And he goes, no, that's that's not what this is. I'm here to overcome the greatest enemy. The greatest enemy, the enemy of sin in you. I've overcome the greatest enemy. That's evil in the world. And Esther points us toward justice, not revenge. That's the pointing. And so when the edict was given in Esther 3, Haman's edict to, to bring about genocide of the Jews, the final, the final phrase in the edict was, and to plunder their goods, Esther 3.13. When the counter-edict is given by Mordecai, Mordecai and Esther 8.11 says, and to plunder their goods. So when you fight them back, Plunder their goods. Now listen to what happens actually. The ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they were killed, but the Jews laid no hand on the plunder. In verse 15, 300 men in Susa are killed, but they laid no hands on the plunder. In verse 16, 75,000 are killed, but they laid no hands on the plunder. And what's happening here is Esther's pointing us towards that this was not about revenge. This was not about reviling and reviling, evil for evil. This is about justice. And generosity is a key indicator of someone who's received justice, who's been justified. Look at the celebration of Purim again in in Esther 9.20. Mordecai records these things, and he says, hey, I want everybody to celebrate, to celebrate what God has done, the victory God's given us, how we weren't annihilated, that we had victory over our enemies. I want to celebrate that. He obligates them, verse 21, to the celebration, but what's part of the obligation in verse 22? It's days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And if you ask a Jew today who's celebrating Purim, they'll say one of the most important parts of Purim is giving gifts to the poor. Because it's a recognition that this victory was grace, it was justice, not revenge. It's pointing to something. What's it pointing to? That evil cannot overcome evil. Evil just perpetuates evil. And you hear this in the Scriptures. Repay no one evil for evil. But but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. You hear it again in Romans 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so how is this evil act of genocide being ordered, celebrated, and the uh, the victory over it? By generosity to one another and generosity to the poor. See, I think a key indicator of the Christian life is a non-retaliatory ethic. It's, it's not evil for evil. It's not reviling for reviling. It's not turning, turning hu- human beings into our enemy over and over and over again. You don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And somebody, somebody right now on Twitter needs to hear this, right? Don't, don't return hate for hate. But on the contrary, bless. For, to, for this you are called, that you may attain a blessing. Blessing. See Esther reminds us that God is just. He's just, and we we can we can rest in His judgment. Look at Romans twelve again. Vengeance is mine. It, it belongs to God. It's not ours. Vengeance is mine. Our place is our place is the Lord. Can I just hit pause on this for a second? Look, like sometimes we, we are so desperate for justice in the world, and we see all the violence and the anger in the world, and we want that justice so badly that we just feel like, well, God's not going to do it. I'll go ahead, and I'll do it. And what happens is we, when we become, look, there, there's a great temptation to give what you feel like others are giving you in response to injustice. You give injustice in return. And what often happens in society, people become the thing they hate. But what happens for Christians is like we go, you know what? Like every sin goes judged. Either you'll be judged for your sin or Christ will be judged for your sin. But every sin goes judged. And it, judgment is God's business, not mine. And so I can, I can relax. See, you need a rest. Retelling our story helps us to rest because we can see God's past faithfulness over and over and over again. That like he doesn't violate his covenant promise to his covenant people. And here in Esther they are saved. But Esther points us to Jesus, and Jesus is our ultimate rest. He's where we get ultimate rest. Listen, the cross is the final battle won. Not over our enemies, but over enmity. Over sin and evil itself. Christ is the ultimate divine reversal. It's the ultimate reversal of things. And when Jesus dies on the cross... If you're a Christian, if you accepted that death as true for you, he is taking every busted and broken and dumb, sinful thing you've ever done, he's saying, I'll pay the penalty for it all. And when he pays the penalty for it, what he does is he wipes your slate clean. Not because you deserved it, because he's good. And he, when he raises from the dead, he proves that he has victory over sin and has victory over death. You see, the ultimate battle was not against sinners, but against sin itself. That's what Jesus overcame. And by the way, the thing that's killing you and everything you love is sin. And it has been overcome by Jesus. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 15, we we can say with the Apostle Paul, O death, where is your victory? We can say with the Apostle Paul, O death, where where is your sting? We we can say, the sting of death is sin. That's what we know. That That was the ultimate battle. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He overcame it. To say it a different way, Jesus was cursed on the tree to overcome the curse of the tree. Adam and Eve took of that fruit from that tree and the curse came. And they, they became radically self-centered. And all of humanity began to break apart. But Paul reminds us in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who's hanged on the tree. And so he took the curse of sin and un- he undid it. It's a great reversal. See, Jesus believed in the judgment of God on evil. He believed in it. In fact, he talked about it more than almost anything else. When Jesus was dying on the cross, Jesus was believing in God's judgment. Let me tell you, friends, sometimes the, sometimes the person that we're hardest on is not, is not some perceived enemy on the outside, it's ourselves. Sometimes we, we, can, we can more easily forgive people who are out here, but we really struggle with forgiving ourselves. And Sometimes we just need to look at the cross of Christ and go, you know what, he really did suffer for me. He really did cover my sins. He really did forgive me. I really am clean. I really am free. The greatest enemy to human flourishing is the sin that lives in each of us. And Jesus died to conquer that sin. He died to overcome it. You could say evil is radical self-centeredness and radical self-righteousness. That's the thing that lives in you. and That's the thing that Jesus is undoing. that's 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 what he's undoing in you he's freeing you to love god and to love the neighbor he's freeing you from trying to prove yourself worthy all the time he's freeing you of all your performance anxiety because you feel like you're failing because jesus succeeded for you so you can feel free to fail jesus look jesus was perfect for you you're free to be imperfect Look, Jesus was good for you because you can't be good. If you could be good, he wouldn't have had to come from heaven to earth to live the life that you could not live and to die the death you should have died. He's your substitute. But sometimes, you know, we are not comfortable with God being God, and we want to be God. And we want to we take things in our own hands. And people hurt us. People hurt us. But when we try to fight evil with evil, evil wins. If you forget your story, you're in danger of becoming the thing you hate. Because you kind of feel like, well, God's not in charge, I better be in charge. He hasn't been victorious, I I, I better go try to fund the victory. Listen, you need a rest. You do, you need a rest. How do you get rest? Retelling our story, that helps us rest. Do you see God being victorious in Esther? He can be victorious in your life. Do you see the Redeemer God bringing about a divine reversal? He can bring about divine reversal in your life. Do you see God taking a real, I mean, this is, like, he used, he used a sinful person like Esther to be a part of his redemption story. A sinful person like Mordecai. Look, Esther and Mordecai had the freedom in Persia to go back to Jerusalem and to live with the Jews, but they chose not to. They stayed. And God used them. He can use you. He can redeem you. And when we retell our story, what it does is it points us to the ultimate, the ultimate story, which is Jesus, who's our ultimate rest. Because He ultimately overcomes our sin. He ultimately overcomes the, things that the, the enemy against, that's waging war against us. There are two identifiable fruits of our rest in Jesus that you can see in Esther and you can see in anybody who's received the grace of Jesus. And they are generosity and forgiveness. When someone's been justified by Jesus, when someone's received the grace of God, these are the two things that show up and manifest in their life. Done right, our generosity is gospel reenactment. Generosity is gospel reenactment. I, uh, I pastored in Boca Raton for years. I didn't plan on saying this. I pastored in Boca Raton for years. And in Boca Raton, there are a lot of Jewish people. A lot of Jewish people come to faith and came to faith in my ministry in Boca. And I, and I be honest with you, have a little had, had a little envy of my, of my Jewish friends, particularly those who, who were Jews and became Christians and began to show me my faith in new ways. And Purim, like other festivals, was retelling, constant retelling of stories, constant retelling of what God has done, constant retelling of His narrative, constant retelling of His faithfulness. And today when Purim is celebrated, like you can ask Jewish friends, if you have any Jewish friends, you can ask them, like when Purim is celebrated, uh, they, you know, there's all kinds of really cool things, and they have these cookies that are shaped like a triangle hat, because that's what Haman's hat was, was, was shaped like, and they're called Haman's ears, and they have this whole thing that they do, the whole celebration, kids get dressed up, it's a big old deal, but a big part of it is, days of sending gifts of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. And kids show up to class uh, during the celebration or show up to parties. They bring gifts of food for each other and they make sure they care for the poor. Why? Because those are the outpourings of re- being a recipient of the grace of God, generosity, and forgiveness. You see, we give unmerited favor because we received unmerited favor. It's a marking of the Christian. You didn't get saved because you were somehow deserving, it was because God was good. And in you and your undeservedness, He came after you anyway and rescued you. And what happens when you realize that, when you realize that, because in every other area of life, listen, in every other area of life, you prove your worthiness by your resume. Let's just get honest here. But God's not impressed with your resume. Because when you bring Him your resume, it says, condemned to death. And grace does violence to our pride and unleashes our generosity. It does violence to our pride. Because no one goes to the cross of Christ leaving going, you know, he really liked me the best. He was really impressed with what my accomplishments. No, you go to the cross of Christ, you go, that's what I really deserved. And he saved me anyway. And sometimes you go to the cross of Christ and you go, if that's what I really deserve, why would anybody risk it to save me? And when you have an honest look at yourself and you have an honest look at the cross of Christ, what you realize is that God is, he's, He's radical, He's a radically loving God. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It's generosity and it's forgiveness. Generosity to even our enemies, but forgiveness to those who hurt us. Your capacity to forgive is directly related to your understanding of the forgiveness you've received. So the, the, greater, you are, the, the greater your awareness of your sin and the greater the, the awareness you have of the grace you've received, it's, it's, it's manifest. Like Your capacity to forgive is directly related to the forgiveness you know you've received. Your capacity to give gener- generously is directly related to the generosity you feel like you've received. What has Jesus done? Well, Jesus turned His enemies into friends. And you have to look at Romans 5.10. For while we were what? Enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So the question I have for you, just in terms of applications, is what story shapes your life? What, what story shapes your behavior? What story right now is shaping you the most? Mike Cosper, in his commentary on Esther, says, uh, Yoram Hosni describes how the Persian exile was a unique time for Jews. The opportunity for assimilation but also the opportunity to go back, to go back to Jerusalem. Hazani wrote It was only after dispersal throughout Babylon and Persia that an individual born as a Jew found himself in an immediate, constant, and personal contact with other possible identities. And he had to choose for himself whether Jewishness, his Jewishness, would be something he would maintain or something he would hide. Let me just propose to you right now, the world's never been more secular in your living history than it is right now. And you've never had in your lifetime a greater opportunity to look more and more like the world or look more and more like Jesus. And it's really a choice you have right now. As a Christian, to to say, what story is going to shape me? Is it the latest story on Fox News or MSNBC or CNN or is it going to be the story told in the pages of Scripture? Is that going to be the thing that shapes me? We must become better at telling our story and showing the world what our story looks like. It's a redemption story. So I want to challenge you. Let's do it. Let's do it. But let's remember our story is not a salvation that rests in our faithfulness, but in God's faithfulness. And we can can go out today and go, yeah, I'm going to live my redemption story, and I'm going to show my redemption story, and I'm going to be generous, and I'm going to be forgiving, and I'm going to do it. Friend, you can't do it. On your own. Second Timothy two thirteen was where the Lord led me this week. If we are faithless, and we will be, He remains faithful. He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. You know what happens in the story of Esther is faithless people are met with a faithful God. And he does his will anyway. And so you could find some rest in him. Find some rest in him. We had our teaching time at New City with generosity, communion, and prayer. We'd love for you to be generous. If you're in person, you can be generous by giving in the box in the back and give online, give on the app. Uh, man, we are so grateful that New City is a generous place and a generous church and we get to do things like the tr- New City at the drive-in event and, and so many other great Be Good News narratives. And that's all because of the generosity of people at New City and we're so thankful for that. I Also, want uh, to to just talk to you about communion for a second. During these next two songs, you feel free if you're at home uh, watching online, or if you're here in service. Uh, there's communion trays in the back if you're in service at home. You can grab some bread, you can grab some wine, uh, some grape juice, and you can break the bread. Remember Christ's body broken for you. Take the cup. Remember His blood shed for you. This is your story. We retell the story every week. Why? Because we need it. Like we need this story. My sins have been covered. By His wounds we are healed. He was emptied on the cross so I be filled with His Spirit. And we just need those stories every week. We can't get enough of it. So you can feel free to take it in service with you or take it with you, take it home. We'd love for you to, to celebrate what the Lord has done for us. And then we end with prayer. And I want to pray with you. Let's pray together. Father, I've struggled all week with this with this story because I, I just I wanted I wanted everybody who was in a messy place, I wanted everybody who was in a messy moment in their own story to feel like you know what, like you are a God that walks into the mess and you redeem the mess. And um, I don't know if I did it well enough or not. And Holy Spirit, I pray you bridge the gap. And there's there's anybody watching today, or anybody in person today that's gathered up, Father, I pray that you would just speak you'd speak to your spirit let us know that you in fact do redeem the most messy stories and that all redemption is pointing to the future redemption where all sin is overcome one day you're going to wipe away all the tears and sin will be no more we we long for that day when lord jesus you illuminate the place with your light we just long for it lord come quickly come quickly rescue us We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.